Welcome to the Vantage Point Podcast. Brody, how you what, doing? What, what? I'm doing great. Yeah, we are doing awesome. I do want to put a disclaimer before we even dive into this. Um, if you are a an avid Vantage Point Podcast listener, this is going to be a little different. Unbeknownst to some of you, we are actually in student ministry. What? And our student ministry is walking through a brand new series through the book of Revelation. And as a way to continue uh, what we're studying in Bible study, we wanted to provide in-depth podcasts that dive a little bit deeper than we can dive into on a normal youth group night. So uh, if, if you are interested in Revelation, we'll do recaps of the sermons and then dive deep. If not, you may want to skip this yeah, episode. Yeah, and if, if you're not a student and you missed the last sermon or you want to go watch it, those are on YouTube. Bet. Pretty easy to find. Yeah. Student IBC Revelation. Absolutely. So without further ado... We're going to dive right on in. Let's have a revelation, Jake. Let's let's dive into what I'm calling the forest. Let's have a heavy revy. Yeah, so last night, Brody, we talked about revelation, and it was titled The Forest, and the reason is, is because sometimes we miss the forest for the trees, and I think that's true of the book of Revelation. I think we focus so much on the nitty-gritty details, specifically in the apocalyptic nature of revelation, you know, talking about the beast, talking about the dragon, talking about all all the different symbols that we lose the beauty of the picture that Revelation paints. And so last night we tried to do that. And so I want to put a disclaimer on the front end of this when we talk about the book of Revelation. We need to understand that the book of Revelation was not written to create confusion for Christians. It wasn't written to create division in the church or promote speculation about the coming of Jesus. See, the purpose of Revelation is actually to point us to the coming of Jesus right? The return of the king. Revelation was written to give us this unshakable hope. It was written to encourage us to, to not waver from holiness in the midst of a seductive culture, and it was written to refute the deception of the church, all while fueling the mission of God's kingdom here on earth. So, that's a word. Yes. Give you a light recap. What did we talk about last night? We talked about what the book of Revelation was. Now, obviously, I just read a little bit of what the the book of Revelation was there, but primarily we see that the book of Revelation uh, was received through a vision from God about God's kingdom, uh, what it is being, and what it will ultimately be established, and how it will never, ever be destroyed. So that is Revelation. It's meant to be less like a textbook and more like a picture book. That's why you see all these symbols. Simples. Samples. Simples. Symbols. There we go. <laughs> you little symbols. Not symbols either. <laughs> Symbolism. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, uh, a couple things. Revelation is filled with prophetic pronouncements, simply meaning it's prophecy too. It's not just apocalyptic, it's also prophetic. Yep. It's also about a king who has already come and who reigns right now, but is also returning. And so, you got to wrap your minds around who Jesus is and what's going on there. Uh, And then it's also written as a congregational letter, meaning you're going to see the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's written to the church. That that seven uh, churches of Asia Minor is actually a representation of the whole church. As we talked about last night, seven is a representation or a symbol of wholeness, completeness. And so this is a letter written to the church. When people think about Revelation, Think about three things. One of those three things, Brody. The three prominent, prominent, the three three pomegranates. 
The three pomegranates. <laughs> uh, prominent millennial. Now I'm hungry. See, now, now you got me thrown off. The three prominent millennial views, Jake. That was very scholarly. And those views are basically an interpretation of where are we at or what's to come. It's kind of like the human thing of like, oh, we think this is what this means. The Some first might one, argue that it is the, uh, the understanding of the millennium. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is a thousand years. Which is a better uh, thing than what I just said. That's okay. But thanks, Jake. Did you like my scholarly accent? Yeah, that was great. Thank you. All right. Whenever you, uh, yeah. Do you want me to do that? It's like a mixture Should of Bruce Wayne and Batman. The premillennialism. The premillennial. And here's where people tune out. Rachel. <laughs> no, 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 they're not. They're like, goodbye. All right. No, no, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Premillennial, yeah. go ahead. So the premillennialism is basically, which says that Jesus will return before the millennium. Mm-hmm. Post-millennialism. Man, it's hard to say these words. Just say post-mill. Post-mill means that Jesus will return after the millennium. And then ah-mill means that we are presently in the millennium. So there's no future millennium to come. Yeah, so in that way, it says that the millennium is the present church age, and there's no longer or no further future millennium to come right. before or after Jesus' return. So, yeah. So that's it. That's, that's kind of what we covered. And then again, uh, why is it written? We, we've already talked about this in our opening, but it's to give unshakable hope to suffering Christians. we got to remember that Revelation was, was written to suffering Christians. Not only that, it's to encourage unwavering holiness in a seductive culture. How, how relevant is that for our culture today? Extremely. When everything is like I mean, crying for our time? Yeah, extremely relevant. Absolutely. Uh, and then la- uh, it's also to refute deception in the church, all for the purpose of fueling the mission among nations. And how is this accomplished? Very simple. Through a grand portrait of God's greatness. The book of Revelation is meant to show us God's greatness. And lastly, through a picture, a glorious picture of God's gospel, which is the plan for him to save sinners. We talked about that in our last podcast. So what were we not able to get into? So much. So (laughs) much. I literally talked so fast. Uh, This will mean nothing if you didn't hear me. But yeah. Uh, and I still left tons of stuff out and could yeah. have gone forever. I literally have told people I had like 20 pages of notes <laughs> for teaching last night. Yeah, you know. But there are actually four different interpretations of how prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And for this podcast, we're going to dive into that. So uh, one of the most controversial questions surrounding Revelation is, when will the prophecies that we see in Revelation be fulfilled? And when will the words of this prophecy in Revelation, come to fulfillment. Basically, in the history of Christianity, over the last 2,000 years, you have four differing interpretations. Yep. I am not going to be able to dive super deep into it because it's going to sound incredibly technical, but I do, for the purpose of listeners in this podcast, if you want to know, I want to touch on each one of these. So, the first interpretation of Revelation is what we call the preterist interpretation. Maybe saying that wrong. That's a fun word. Preterist. Can we make theological words yes. easier to say? Yeah. How about uh, how about pr- Peter? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Maybe there is no way. <laughs> I don't know. Theology's crazy. So anyway, it, it, it says that these prophecies were fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity, meaning they've already been fulfilled. So basically, some people believe that everything that's written in Revelation was fulfilled pretty soon after it was written. Some people believe that the book is prophesying the fall of Jerusalem in the first century, which we know to be fact and has happened, and other people believe that the book is prophesying the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century, but nothing beyond that. So, now, 
The good thing about this interpretation is that it takes seriously the potential application of this book to its original audience. The bad thing is that it ignores clear allusions to the final judgment, not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the earth. So, yeah, there's the preterist. Preterist. I'm totally saying that wrong. Yeah, I don't even know. I couldn't give you. It's P-R-E. No. I don't know. How about this? God's sovereign. It doesn't matter. Yeah, amen, amen. All right, so you've got that. Now, you also have what's called the historistic. Why, why can't we just say historical? <laughs> Historicist. 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 I am struggling. That's okay. <laughs> I also have a cough. The historicist approach. The historic. Yes, what you said. I'll say it for you. Saying that these prophecies have been and are being fulfilled in the course of Western Christian history, a.k.a. our modern uh, history. So basically, it's been common throughout more recent history uh, in particular, but over the last 500 years or so, to read predominantly Western Christian history into the pages of Revelation, which, shocker, Westerners want to make everything about them. Yep. So during the Protestant Reformation, many Reformers actually believed that the Pope was the Antichrist or that the Roman Catholic Church was the false prophet. Do you know that? No, yeah, I had no crazy. idea. Crazy. Others have said that Hitler was, or Napoleon was. I've or heard Mussolini. the Hitler yeah, thing. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the 1980s, people would say that it was the Soviet Union, uh, led by Gorbachev, or whatever his name Gorbachev. was. Yep. Uh, and the mark of the beast was the thing on his head. Really? Yeah. So, particularly the last 60 years, uh, after Israel became a nation, there's been heightened intensity with the interpretation of this view, uh, where people see the detail of revelation through the eyes of current events in the Middle East that are going on right now. Yeah. So, uh, that is the historicist, whatever. Historicist. Historicist woo. <laughs> Next, the problems with this one, uh, there are obviously very many. Uh, the focus is almost exclusively on Western cultural history. Which is funny. Yes. Um, there's all kinds of speculation that's involved in trying to find contemporary parallels that you have to rework it for every new period in world history. And on top of all this, this interpretation makes the book of Revelation virtually irrelevant for its original hearers, which is not the case at all. Right. Um, this was not the message uh, that was when they heard. It, it made them think about Hitler or Mussolini or the Pope. Um, so, yeah. But that's that view, and we need to... We need to we need to dive in deep to it. Yeah, you know. So, all right, next, the third one. This is the futurist, very easy to say, futurist interpretation, which says that these prophecies are largely unfulfilled. Basically, chapters 4 through 22 are still waiting for the fulfillment in the future. There are different versions of this view. Some believe that these prophecies will be fulfilled literally in order in which they were listed here in the book of Revelation. Others, however, believe that these prophecies will be fulfilled not quite as literally or as strictly chronologically as they were described here in the book of Revelation. Again, one problem, pretty big problem, this calls into question what application this book would have had for its first century hearers if the majority of this book was talking about things that haven't happened in 2,000 years since then. Mm. And then it leads us to a lot of speculation about how these prophecies will literally play out. Again, I'm not giving you my views. I'm giving you the classic views on this. 
And lastly, we have the idealist interpretation, which says that these prophecies are being and have been fulfilled symbolically throughout the history of the church. Basically, this interpretation views Revelation as a symbolic portrayal of conflicts between God and Satan, Christ and his church battling with the forces of sin and evil, a conflict that is reflected in every age of the church, and a conflict that will one day culminate in the ultimate triumph of Jesus and his church. This interpretation obviously avoids some of the speculation that's common in the other interpretations, but at the same time, it seems to downplay some of the literal historical realities that are represented by certain symbols in the book of Revelation. So, which one's yeah, right? what do we believe? What's right? Obviously, I'm not going to set the scene with that today. I mean, the goal is to show you the forest. Yeah. These are the four views that people have historically taken, and we've got to just print them out and allow you to wrestle with God's word as we dive into the book of Revelation. I don't, I'm not, my goal is not to tell you what to believe. My yeah. goal is to preach the word of God and give you historical views about what people have said about Revelation. Yeah, one caveat I, I think we should all know is that we are human and God is not. He's, we are finite and he's infinite. That's right. So we are trying to explain things in a finite human term so that we could absolutely be wrong. You know, like there's just a lot of unknowns and that's okay. That's where we trust in the Lord, and you know that He is sovereign. He's in control, not us. Yeah, I think, um, excuse me, right in line with that, I think we also have to understand a lot of people don't know how to read the book of Revelation. And right. we talked about this last night. I'm not going to have too much into it, but we also got to understand it was written to an original audience as well. Yeah. And so two important contexts that really matter when we're approaching the book of Revelation, Brody, is first, we need to look at every text within the specific historical context, a.k.a. seminary professors, context, context, context. Context is it everything. It matters. <laughs> it matters where it's written, why it's written, how it's written. All of that stuff matters. Uh, a basic rule for interpreting the Bible is this. A text can never mean what it never meant. Yep. Ba-ba! It can never mean what it never meant. But so people so, so harshly try to put their own meaning in the text. Uh, I've heard it said this way. When we study Scripture, it has many applications, several applications, but only one correct interpretation. And so many people will try to give it many interpretations, and that's just not how the Bible was written. God had one purpose, one interpretation, and it applies so many different ways. Right. So many applications but one interpretation. And so that is very important contextually that we understand that. We are not living in a day that the original audience lived in. I mean, you have to go there and understand. If you put yourself in their shoes, this is a time where you probably couldn't read. Not many people could. You were persecuted. I mean, you had fear of the Romans. You had fear of the Jewish people. And you're meeting in secret to worship God and learn about who Jesus is. And so you're facing danger literally on every single direction. Yep. That's crazy. And this is who's hearing this. I mean, think about even the author of this book had been exiled to this point. John could not kill John. 
They tried multiple no, times. Boy. <laughs> Boil you? No. Uh-uh. Whip you? No. Son, we're just going to send you away. Okay, you go are cursed. <laughs> we're going to put you on an island. Just get out. Get out of here. <laughs> no, so, so, so it's written for that. And then second, we also need to understand that, that each text in its specific historical context is important, but it also fits in the overall biblical context. Right, so this is another good pit principle for us studying the Bible. Anytime we do it, always move from the clear to the obscure. All right, here's what I mean by that. People will try to cling to the obscure and then move it to the clear. Yep. And that's not how our brains are designed to work, and that's not how the Bible is written. It is important for us to understand that there are things that are obscure in Scripture that we just can't understand. Prophecies that we're going to read, and we're going to be like, what is it talking about? That's yeah. obscure. But we can't go from that and try to go to the clear. Instead, we need to understand this is what God has said. This is who God is. This is what he has revealed. And through the clear, we then move to understanding the obscure. And we actually view the obscure through the lens of what we already know to be so clear. In other words, we should not be shouting where the Bible is whispering. Mm. Amen. Hey. Amen. That was good, right? I yeah. Know. So, other significant reminder, I read it on the beginning, and then we're going to just go straight into chapter one. We need to understand that this book and this conversation is not written to create confusion for the Christian community, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not meant to cause division amongst us, and it is not meant to promote speculation about the coming of Jesus. This book is meant to be a book that honors and glorifies the greatness yeah. of God and that shows the triumph of his gospel, which is on full display through the person and the character and the action of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And we shouldn't be scared to no. read it. I think that so often Christians avoid Revelation because they're like, oh, I just want to understand that. Yeah. And, but that's okay. Like, you should still study it, unpack it. Who knows what God could teach you through learning a book that may be kind of obscure to you, you know? Yeah. So <clears throat> we tend to overcomplicate Scripture sometimes. So many times. And we can't approach Revelation with that overcomplicatedness. No. All right, so from this point on, I want us to dive into, we covered the first eight verses last night, and I'm not going to rehash those for people who listened. It's available on YouTube if you want to listen it. But let's dive in and let's actually break down what is the rest of chapter one about. Let me read it real quick. It says in John, or John, Revelation <laughs> chapter one, starting in verse nine, I... John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. What he's saying there is he, he's just showing credibility for who he is. This is John. You know him. This is where he's at. And this message was given to him by God through Jesus, through an angel. And it's the testimony of Jesus. He goes on and he says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you have seen or write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Send it to those churches. Now, he's not saying in that, like contextually here, we've said it again, I want to be very clear, not just those churches. Yeah. It's representing the church. Send it to the church. Number seven is complete and wholeness there. Yeah. He goes on in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In the face was like the, the sun shining in full strength. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, that those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so let's break this down. That's a ton. We get into a little symbolism there. Praise God that he himself reveals what he's talking about when it comes to the the lampstands and when it comes to the stars. Uh, Imagine that. I do want us to see, like, if I could give you a main idea, because we, we are running out of time here, and I don't want to hold people too long as we dive into this, but as you study this, a main idea that you can pull from verses 9 through 20 is that even in the midst of suffering and hardship, so that's the original audience, that's what they're dealing with, and we deal with that all the time, the church of Jesus can look to the risen Savior and receive encouragement to both persevere and to worship. What he is saying is fear not. I think the most powerful verse that we read is, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Who am I? I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys. Amen. Of death and Hades. How powerful is that? Bro, that's the Jesus we serve. Amen. He is powerful. And you want to get it, like, the description of describing Jesus Wow, you know, Whoa. like try and even picture that in your head, you know? Absolutely, like that is glory. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, imagine being John, and you're just like, oh, whoa, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this man is burnished bronze. This man is golden. This man has flames of fire, <laughs> refined furnace up in this piece. That's crazy. My favorite, his voice was like the roar of many waters which if you stand we went so we went to niagara falls yeah and you could hear so that loud, loud. you could so barely loud. talk bro when you're like under the mist yeah imagine that being a voice wow yeah. you know like the imagery that we're getting there is Absolutely. crazy all right so <clears throat> verses 9 through 11 what, what what are we pulling out from there that's truth obviously he is saying that the message that he is bringing is for the whole church but we need to understand that message What's going on in the church? They are suffering. And so we can pull a truth from this. The plan of Jesus is going to involve suffering and service, meaning you will suffer if you are a follower of Jesus. It's going to bring suffering. And that's not something that we should run from. I mean, it's not something that's going to be comfortable, but, but it is the promise of Christ. He said that we would suffer if we follow him. Yep. But it also shows It's going to involve suffering, but service. The church is serving him, serving Jesus. And so when we face suffering of many kinds, we should consider it what Paul would say, pure 
joy. joy. And that's exactly what we yep. see here in John. And as we suffer, look at verse 9. We need to suffer for his kingdom. Why? John is saying, look, I understand what it means to suffer. And he does. We've right. talked about it already. Yeah. I've gone through tribulation. Why? For the kingdom. And I've done it with patient endurance, just like you. We need to understand that we suffer for his kingdom. And that's a worthy thing to suffer for. Amen. Nothing is more worthy. Not only that, we serve and we serve his church. A church, by the way, that is not a building. It is very clear that we see these seven listed churches. But what he is saying is the church is the people of God that have been born again based on their fellowship and based on the fact that they have followed Jesus with their everything. They have acknowledged proudly that he is Lord of their lives and Savior of their souls. We serve Jesus's people, the church. And that is the point of verses 1 through 9. We dive into a next section here, verses 12, after we get the list of the churches there, 12 through 16. What is that all about? It's about the person of Christ and how it should be something that gives us awe and inspiration. It's yeah. literally detailing who is Jesus. And we need to understand that like, when we picture Jesus, we have to sense his presence. Yeah. Like, it's a powerful presence. Like People paint Jesus as this weak, <laughs> feeble loser. No. That is not Jesus. Bro, you want to see a picture of Jesus? My man has got a roaring voice. My man has got a massive white globe. My man is or uh, robe and he has got a golden sash. My man is strong. Yeah. He is powerful. We need to sense his presence and we need to marvel at his portrait. The power of our Messiah. This is God made flesh and he is coming back for his people. So when you are enduring difficulty and you are being persecuted, don't cling to that persecution. Instead, cling to the hope of who Jesus is and the purpose with which he has given you while you are enduring this persecution for his name's sake. You are not alone, church. You have got the Messiah on your side, and he has mm. given you his Holy Spirit. Notice how John writes in verse 9, it is I in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit of the Lord's day. We'll finish this, verses 17 through 20. Again, this is not going to be as deep a dive, but I want to give you the, the context and, and, and real practical applications we dive into this. But, but what we see in verses 17 through 20 is that the power of Christ should overwhelm us, but also encourage us. It, it, it's, it's beauty on display. Like, my man, he is the alpha, the omega. He is the beginning. He is the last. He is the living one who conquered sin, Satan, and death. Get the real picture and portrait of Jesus. He ascended to the Father. He resurrected from the grave. He lives forever, standing at the right hand of God. And he has authority over death. We saw all throughout the Gospels what Jesus has authority of. He has authority over uh, sickness. He has authority over nature. He has authority over the supernatural. Jesus has authority. And sometimes we as believers diminish this. John wants us to know. God wants us to know that Jesus has authority, and this is the Jesus that we cling to. Not only does he have authority, he has a plan. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that he has a plan for us. Write, therefore, what you have seen, John. Let them know my plan, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Like, let the people know. And lastly, he helps his people understand his word. Jesus. I, that's why I kind of made it tongue-in-cheek, but like 
He explains for us what the mystery is of these stars and these lampstands. Jesus is not out to confuse us. He is out to show us what we need to know. So quickly, that was my sum up of Revelation chapter 1. Yeah. Dog, I mean, I, I'm on one, right? You're rolling, bro. Dog, it's so exciting. When I hear that, I mean, it, it makes me think this is why we do this. I, I think I want to touch back on this one thing real quick. Please do. Is you said that we paint a picture at, of Jesus. At, we paint a picture of Jesus as a frail human. It's like, is, I mean, he came as human. Yes. But that's being wrapped right. and cl- clothed in humanity. Right. I think we often just forget how, like, Jesus is coming back, mm-hmm. and the battle's already been won, dude. Amen. And there's nothing that will thwart that plan. Nothing. Nothing that we can do, that Satan can do, that anything can do. Can I, can I how just, much power is that? Can I also just make this point, Brody? Because you, 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 when you said that, you just brought it to me. You know why he looked frail and weak and humble and meek? He was wrapped in humanity. Amen. He was made in, not made in our likeness, that's, we're made in God's likeness, but he, he took on our fleshly state. He had to be fully man. Yeah, well, and that's where his weakness was. Right, it was in us, so we could relate to us. Yes, and that's why we, the transfiguration is such a unique piece oh, of scripture man. because the the glory of Jesus kind of peeled back just a little bit, and that's why the disciples are like, we should stay here. Now we're seeing John is seeing the full glory of the sun. Yeah, and that is going to be we will all hopefully, if you're following Christ, see that absolutely one day, and that's our hope. Yeah. So what we have in chapter one. Obviously, the first eight, verse, first eight verses, we see kind of why Revelation is written. And in these last few verses, what we see is that we have a, a, a God that does not lead us to fear. We don't have to fear time. He's the first and the last. We don't have to fear life. He is alive forevermore, and we will reign with him. Ephesians says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And not only that, we don't have to fear death. Yeah, persecution may intensify. Death may ultimately come. But we don't have to fear death. Why? Because he is the one that holds the keys to the grave and to death. He defeated it all. As we walk through this book, we are going to see a Jesus that is in control and has authority. And that Jesus is the same Jesus that loves us with his goodness, his graciousness, his kindness. He is the manifestation of love to us from God the Father. Mm. Mm. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, I hope that wasn't too much. I hope we got through it uh, in a relatively timely manner. Uh, You'll have to excuse me if it sounded like I was reading. I had to go through some notes, but uh, it was fun. So uh, we will continue to do this, and we'll try to have it out after our Sunday service. If you're interested, listen, I promise you, we are better in person. Right. So join us at Elevate. Yeah. Come on, join us at Elevate. We meet on Sunday nights from 6 to 7.30 in The Rock, door 11. And we are diving into this series. Uh, next week, we've got a, a dope speaker sitting across from me that's uh, going to bring the word. I don't know about that one. dive into uh, the churches of Revelation. It's going to be good. Let's get it. Yeah, come on. All right. See y'all. See y'all.